Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, good to be with you as always. I uh, love seeing your faces. I uh, love being in this church. love seeing everybody. Uh, thank you so much to the praise team this morning. I, I just, man, I was really blessed by that. You guys do such a great job, and I just really appreciate that. And the sound team, you guys are phenomenal. Everything that you guys, the sound media, everything. Give them a round of applause. Thank you. Yeah. Not to be corny or anything, but you, know, you guys don't get pat on the back enough. I, you know, and I'm sure that everybody in this church does, but uh, it's just, it's just <laughs> enough is not, you know, you guys need to be paddling back every Sunday. It's just an incredible job you guys do behind the scenes, and I really appreciate you. Um, all right, so the title of the message this morning, let's get right into it, is Pleading the Case and Proclaiming the Gospel. All right? Pleading the Case and Proclaiming the Gospel. Uh, because proclaiming the gospel and pleading the case is not just the work of a pastor. It is the work of every believer. All right? Uh, so we're going to get in and we're going to talk about some evangelism this morning. Uh, and so before I do that, I, you guys know this about me by now. I'm kind of a nerd. Um, I'm a librarian by trade. And so I, the nature of doing that, I'm a nerd. I like looking through archives. I know that's a, you know, it's just a ridiculous thing to enjoy to do on your time off. Uh, but I like doing it. Uh, and I was looking through the Ronald Reagan Library archives recently. Uh, again, I know, nerdy, all right? And here's what I ran across. It's a handwritten letter written by Reagan while he was in office on White House stationery to his father-in-law, who was an atheist, on his deathbed. Okay? Amazing stuff. All right? Amazing stuff. And I want to share this with you this morning because I was just kind of blown away by it when I read it. Here's what it said. August 7th, 1982. Dear Loyal, his name. I hope you'll forgive me for this, but I've been waiting and wanting to write you ever since we talked on the phone. I'm aware of the strain you're under and believe with all my heart there is help for that. There is a line in the Bible, wherever two or more gathered in my name, there will I be also. Loyal, I know of your feeling, your doubt, but could I just impose on you a little longer? Some 700 years before the birth of Christ, the ancient Jewish prophets predicted the coming of a Messiah. They said He would be born in a lowly place, would proclaim Himself the Son of God, and would be put to death for saying that. All in all, there were a total of 123 specific prophecies about His life, all of which came true. Crucifixion was unknown in those times, yet it was foretold that He would be nailed to a cross of wood. And one of the predictions was that he would be born of a virgin. Now I know that is probably the hardest for you as a doctor to accept. The only answer that can be given is this. It was a miracle. But Loyal, I don't find that as, that as great a miracle as the actual history of his life. Either he was who he said he was, or he was the greatest faker and charlatan who ever lived. But would a liar and a faker suffer the death he did when all he had to do to save himself was admit he'd been lying. The miracle is that a young man of 30 years without credentials as a scholar or priest began preaching on street corners. He owned nothing but the clothes on his back, and he didn't travel beyond a circle less than 100 miles across. He did this for only three years and then was executed as a common criminal. But for 2,000 years he has had more impact on the world than all the teachers, scientists, emperors, generals, and admirals who ever lived, all put together. 
The Apostle John said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. We have been promised that all we have to do is ask God in Jesus' name to help when we have done all we can. When we've come to the end of our strength and abilities and we'll have that help, we only have to trust and have faith in His infinite goodness and mercy. Loyal, you and Edith have known a great love, more than many have been permitted to know. That love will not end with the end of this life. We've been promised this is only a part of life and that a greater life, a greater glory awaits us. It awaits you together one day and all that is required is that you believe and tell God you put yourself in His hands. Love, Ronnie. All right. So, this is not a matter of the president going through an evangelistic chore of checking something off the list that God told him to do or a pastor told him to do to reach out to a lost person. All right? He wasn't guilted into going and doing some sort of evangelistic thing uh, because he sat in a church service and the pastor preached about evangelism and he just felt guilted to doing it. Right? This is truly a plea for the soul of a man that he cares about. Right? I mean, there's all kinds of emotion in this letter. A sitting U.S. president, you set that aside. I mean, even taking that out of it, this man is pleading for the life of his father-in-law. For his soul. You know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of times when when preachers preach about evangelism, it's always trying to guilt you guys into doing it. You know, that's that's kind of the vibe I, I get a lot of times. But that's really not, that's really not the, the goal uh, this morning. My, my goal is simply to say we are concerned with evangelism because we're concerned about the souls of the people we love. Amen? It's not about an evangelistic chore or a checklist or anything like that. It's truly because that is us pleading for the lives of the people we care about. And so that's the context in which we see Paul's pleading uh, in Acts chapter 13. Very similar to what uh, the president uh, here, President Reagan, had to say to his father-in-law. It's a plea for the Jews that he was speaking to there in Pisidian Antioch, uh, and the Gentiles as well, to come to know Jesus, to accept Him as Messiah. And that's really, we're going to see a similar plea. And I think when we see Paul and Barnabas here in this story, we kind of get some insight into maybe how we can do evangelism and some principles for us today because there's a lot of overlap between their context and where we find ourselves even today. So that's where we're going to be. Acts chapter 13. Uh, We're going to start in verse 13. And we're going to look at some lessons from Paul on evangelism this morning. All right, so go ahead and turn there with me. Acts chapter 13. The official name of the book is Acts of the Apostles. Not a lot of people realize that. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13, starting in verse 13. Then Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Moving on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent them a message saying, Brothers, if if you have a message of exhortation for the people, speak it. So Paul stood up, gestured with his hand, and said... All right, now before we get into what he actually said, 
Let me talk a little bit about this. And I'm going to be a preacher this morning, if that's okay with you guys. Um, when we talk about these guys, uh, the, the, the whole message of the book of the Acts of the Apostles is that the gospel is going to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other ends of the earth. And in that time, the other ends of the earth, it, you know, the earth was smaller geographically than, they, uh, than, what we, than what we sort of think of today. They, they thought of the other ends of the earth, the other ends of the Roman Empire. They are attempting, in other words, Paul and Barnabas are, they're attempting to fulfill the commission, even the great commission, in their lifetime. They're trying to take the gospel to the other ends of the earth. Right? That's, that's what we see from town to town, from place to place. The entire book is a story of how the gospel is going forward, the church is being instituted uh, in the other ends of the earth. But this priority, these priorities flies in the face of a lot of our cultural sort of priorities today. I mean, it really does. When you think about, uh, when you think about evangelism and making disciples, there's a reason that it's easier for an organization like World Help to get volunteers and funding and things like that than it is for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, right? It's just, it's easier to get help for something that's more in line with humanitarian aid or humanitarian needs than it is for an organization that's instituted for the sake of spreading the gospel and the gospel alone. It's, and part of that is my generation, I don't know if you guys have picked up on this, cares deeply about the needs of others. And that's a good thing. That's a fantastic thing. I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Because it turns out that God cares deeply about the needs of others. God cares about injustices. God cares about taking care of the poor and the widows and the orphans. That, that's a good and godly priority. And my generation maybe understands that uh, in, in a really big and, and good way. But here's what I see. What I see very often is a focus on humanitarian need and injustices and a focus on taking care of those impoverished and physical needs to the detriment of ever addressing the spiritual needs. Because if we care ultimately about ending human suffering, as my generation seems to, then we should care deeply about dealing with the greatest suffering there is, and that is the spiritual suffering that ends in spiritual death that we call hell. Right? Caring about others, loving others, serving others must include more than just treating the symptoms of sin. It must treat the sin. And the only way that you treat the sin is with the gospel. I was watching last night, I um, hope you guys won't judge me for this, I saw a commercial put out by Corona uh, beers, okay? Uh, I just, you know, I wasn't drinking a Corona. I was watching a commercial. Um, so anyway, I, I saw a commercial on Corona beer. And believe it or not, they're spending a bunch of money, uh, apparently. Of course, it's ambiguous. They don't exactly say how much or anything. But they're spending a bunch of money to clean up the oceans. So they're taking a portion of their profit and, and actually going out and helping a wildlife and things like that. You know, that's a great thing. That's resonating with people. Sure, that, let's clean up the oceans. That's, that's part of creature care. As, as being part of God's family, we care about God's creation. That's, that's a good thing. But I do not see the same urgency in, in culture or even in the church when it comes to evangelism. I just do not see it. 
most of the time, you, you kind of, at least what I've seen, a lot of people don't even want to hear an evangelism type sermon. It's, uh, you know, it, because that, that just seems like it's a little, a little bit of an imposition on the church. But I'm just saying the greatest suffering, if we truly care about people like we say we do, if we truly care about injustices, if we truly care about those in need, we have to care first and foremost and ultimately about preaching the gospel and pleading for the souls of men. We cannot do one and care nothing about the other. I want to kind of talk about something that Luke glosses over in this passage. Because it really hammers this thing home, all right? Luke assumes that when you read this, you know a little bit about the geography of the area. We really don't. I mean, we're not, we don't live in the same area as the original readers. So let me tell you a little bit about this. Paul and Barnabas got on a boat and uh, traversed the ocean from Paphos to Perga, all right? We're talking about a 200-mile trek in the ocean. Not on a 60-foot yacht, all right? Uh, this is not a safe journey. This is, this is the kind of journey that uh, puts your life in peril. 200 miles is the only way you could get there through the ocean, all right? So they, they go on this journey 200 miles from, uh, from Paphos to Perga. And by the way, we know from elsewhere in the book of Acts that this is where Paul actually gets malaria, uh, he actually gets malaria during the journey. He was so sick that when he finally got to the next city, he couldn't preach. I mean, he preached on the way back, but he couldn't preach on the way there because he was sick from malaria. So they get to this, to this town, uh, Perga, and now they're going to go to Pisidian Antioch. By the way, that's 100 miles through the Tarsus Mountains, crossing several rivers, uh, dealing with robbers and uh, burglars along the way that are serious obstacles, okay? Uh, you, you could have been, been jumped by these guys at any point in that journey. There were a number of places in that area where there, there were ambushes pretty regularly. So this is considerable danger crossing over those rivers. And they go 200 miles, again, in the ocean, shark-infested waters, all this, right, on a rickety boat. They make it to uh, the next city, and he catches malaria, he's sick, so you know what? they got to go 100 miles through the mountains, crossing rivers, dealing with robbers and burglars. They finally get to Pisidian Antioch. They sit down in the synagogue. And the Jewish leaders say this, Brothers, do you guys have something you want to share with us? <laughs> uh, yeah, actually I do. Uh, Paul gets up, by the way. Every other story where Paul is with Barnabas, Barnabas is always listed first, and Barnabas isn't even, li even listed, listed or mentioned in this passage. It's kind of interesting. Even a couple chapters later at the Jerusalem Council, Barnabas is listed first. So Luke is telling us something about how they did evangelism. Sometimes you just got to uh, you know, sit down and let the other guy speak because he's got the reputation in that particular place, interestingly enough. And so Paul gets up and says... Yes, I've got something to say. And what I'm about to share with you here, starting in verse 16, is not a sermon from Josh Waltman who traveled from Rustburg, Virginia. I'm going to give you the words of the Apostle Paul 
that travel 300 miles through ocean and mountains to go to the synagogue in the city in Antioch to give a sermon, okay? This is the Apostle Paul's sermon as he would have given it then, all right? Here's what he said. Men of Israel, and you Gentiles who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our ancestors and made the people great during their stay as foreigners in the country of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, He led them out of it. For a period of about 40 years, He put up with them in the wilderness. After He had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave His people their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, He gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin who ruled for 40 years. After removing him, God raised up David, their king. He testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my heart who will accomplish everything I want him to do. From the descendants of this man, God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as He promised. Before Jesus arrived, John had proclaimed a baptism for repentance to all the people of Israel. But John was completing his mission. He stated repeatedly, Who do you think that I am? I am not he, but look, one is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers, descendants of Abraham's family, and those Gentiles among you who fear fear God, the message of this salvation has been sent to us. For the people who live in Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him, and they fulfilled the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath by condemning him. Though they found no basis for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had accomplished everything that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had accompanied him from Galilee to Jerusalem. These are now his witnesses to the people. And we proclaim to you the good news about the promise of our ancestors, that the promise God has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have fathered you. But regarding this fact that he has raised raised Jesus from the dead, never again to be in the state of decay, God has said it in this way, I will give you the holy and trustworthy promises made to David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not permit your holy one to experience decay. For David after he had served God's purposes in his own generation, died, was buried with his ancestors, and experienced decay. But the one whom God raised up did not experience decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this one forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by this one, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which the law of Moses could not justify you. Watch out then that what is spoken about by the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, be amazed and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work you would never believe, even if someone tells you. The sermon from the Apostle Paul to the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. In a nutshell. Maybe some of you have been on a mission trip and... um, you maybe have heard of something called creation to Christ. Has anyone ever heard of creation to Christ? Okay. Um, Paul doesn't use, funny enough, Romans road of evangelism here. All right. There's no three-step method. That's, you know, that's, that's not something that Paul does when he preaches this message to the synagogue there in Pisidian Antioch. 
He does something closer to what's called creation of Christ. It's where you start in Genesis and you tell the story of the Bible to people that you know, appreciate truth coming to them in stories and you make your way down to Jesus. He doesn't start in Genesis. He starts with Abraham and goes to Saul and then to David and then to the prophets and then to Pilate and John and then ultimately Jesus. He tells the story of Israel. He tells the story of their ancestors to get them to see the connection with who Jesus really is as the actual Messiah. I think that this gives us a pretty good way to do evangelism. I really do. How do we explain who Jesus is? Well, tell the story of Scripture. Paul points to the Old Testament. We can point to Paul. Paul is given the Great Commission given the mission to build the kingdom, we are in the line of Paul. Does that make sense? We're able to do evangelism by preaching how we are connected to this grand narrative, this grand story of what God is doing in salvation. Now, interestingly enough, uh, you know, this kind of way of preaching, this kind of way of talking about the gospel and connecting it to the Old Testament, connecting it to the stories of Scripture, this happens a lot in the book of Acts. Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3 does this. Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7 does this. Uh, but even Paul, Acts chapter 17, famously, he's standing at the Areopagus. And you know what? Those people are, you know, they're, they're pagan and they're, they're, in terms of religion. They don't know anything about the Old Testament, so Paul talks about their uh, temple to the unknown God. He finds a way within their pagan religion, within their belief system, to jump straight into and catapult into the Gospel, knowing their culture. And I think what we see here in the book of Acts, when we do evangelism, we can do it either way. We can talk about the Old Testament. We could talk about culture. But getting the Gospel in there requires us to work on being able to share it in one of these, uh, in one of these methods. And I think, I think we need to work towards both. But no matter, what, no matter what we do, I think we see here is an emphasis on God's sovereignty and the salvific process. When God talks about salvation... When Paul preaches about salvation, the emphasis on, is on the fact that God does it. Look, about, look at this. God chooses Israel. God made the people great in Egypt. God led them out of Egypt. God put up with them in the wilderness. God destroyed the pagan nations to give them a land. God gave them the judges. God gave them a king and removed Saul and then gave them David. Then God sends a Savior in the line of David who's better than David. God provides a witness in the form of John the Baptist. And even in the death and resurrection of the supposed Messiah, God was using that for His purposes. God did the work of salvation. That's the emphasis of the whole sermon, is that even though people meant their decisions for evil, even though people crucified God incarnate, God used in His sovereignty their evil choices for His purpose to carry out His plan. It is God who does it. And that's the core of Paul's message. So Jesus then becomes the crescendo or the climax or the apex of all of human history. God fulfills it all in one man named Jesus. So, our culture needs to hear 
that. We are not wandering aimlessly in our lives without meaning or purpose or value. We are not in a moral vacuum of evolutionary happenstance. We are not without purpose and value and meaning. We have meaning and it is specific to Jesus. On the flip side of that, listen to me. The universe does not revolve around you or me or us. Hear that for a second. That's that's core to the gospel proclamation. Let that sink in. The universe, all of human history, does not revolve around you or me or us. Instead, we are part of God's plan to see all of creation redeemed in and through the climax of history that is the coming of Jesus. That is what we need to be focusing on when it comes to our proclamation of the gospel. And that's exactly why in verse 40, I think Paul ends his sermon with a warning from Habakkuk. Uh, it's not a seeker-sensitive verse, y'all. Sorry. It just, it just isn't. Uh, Paul basically says if, if you reject the revelation that God gives you, if you reject the gospel message that you've heard, if you find yourself rejecting that, there's a severe, severe judgment coming for you. In the same way that Jesus fulfilled the laws of the prophets and all of the prophecies that came before Him, He says, so too will you fulfill the prophecies in the Old Testament about judgment if you reject Jesus. It's, it's just an interesting thing He's saying here. Uh, look at the results of Paul's sermon. Look at 42. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people were urging them to speak about these things on the next Sabbath. When the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and were persuading them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city assembled together to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what Paul was saying by reviling him. Both Paul and Barnabas replied courageously, it was necessary to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have appointed you to be a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began to, hear, to rejoice and praise the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. So the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the entire region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high social status and the prominent men of the city, here we go, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and threw them out of their region. So how did they respond? Verse 51. So after they shook the dust off of their feet in protest against them, they just moved on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So what was the response of the people? Well, it was kind of mixed, right? The Gentiles accept the message. They're being brought into the family of God. We are an extension of Paul's message even then. We are the fruit of something that was started in Paul's day. The inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom and family of God. We are here because of what he did there. And so, 
the Gentiles accept. It's a positive response on their end, many of them. But the Jews do exactly what he has warned them not to do based on Habakkuk. Here we are doing exactly what Habakkuk said they were going to do. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, I, you know, I, I, really, I really think it's a, it's a matter of racial division. I'm just going to be honest with you. The, the Jews had suffered persecution under the Romans and had a, a long history of Gentile oppression against them. They've got their religion and their God, Yahweh, that's theirs, and they don't want the Gentiles to be a part of it. It's not unlike what Jonah was going through. He didn't want the Ninevites and those Gentiles, those pagans, to hear a message of redemption from Yahweh. So here we are, the Jews doing the same old sin, and it's, it's kind of racial in nature, so just to be honest with you. Uh, they're upset that God would include them. How, how can the Jews be so close and yet so far to the gospel? How is this even possible? It's like they have the message of Christ. They had the Old Testament. They had studied it. They see the prophecies that are made that have come into fruition because of the central point of human history that is the coming of Christ. And they missed it. Entire, how is that even possible for someone to be so spiritually blind? How is that even possible? Um, today, we, there's, a, there's a famous atheist by the name of Thomas Nagel. Um, I've been studying him recently for my dissertation. Thomas Nagel made a, a, a very self-reflective statement uh, where he says, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. He attributes this to what he calls a cosmic authority problem. He doesn't want an authority to exist that he has to submit to. And I think that what's happening here is the proclamation of the gospel, the revelation that the Jews were being given, was something that was inconvenient for them. They didn't like the outcome of it. They didn't like with the conclusion of it. They didn't like the fact that Gentiles would participate in with their religion. They didn't like what the gospel was saying or what the gospel was going to conclude with. And so instead of evaluating it for whether or not it's true, they close off their eyes spiritually. They plug their ears spiritually and just say that it's false. Same thing with atheists today. Same thing with unbelievers today. Same thing that with people that come through those doors, sit down in this place, hear God's word and say, I don't believe it or that I refuse to accept it or I don't want anything of it. I don't want to do it with anything where I have to submit myself to the God of the universe. It's the same thing when we talk over and over and over again in Scripture, when, when Paul even talks about this over and over again, spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear, and people are spiritually blind to the message because they don't have those things. Same thing today. Same thing today. To the point that with these particular people, these people that were spiritually blind and spiritually deaf, they actually pulled some political weight to have these apostles, the messengers of God Almighty, be kicked out of the city. Alright, so it's kind of an amazing thing. Of course, the disciples, you know, they, they are overwhelmed with joy as a result of this thing because some of the Gentiles came to know Jesus. But look what they do. This is something that we kind of miss sometimes. Again, it's a cultural thing. They shook off the dust of their sandals. All right? 
Anybody know what that means? You know where that comes from? Anybody want to venture a guess? Yeah, I'm asking. Yeah. Yep. Jesus tells them to do this as they take the gospel uh, literally to the other ends of the earth. Jesus tells them to do this. Do you know the significance of it culturally? You ever heard of it? All right. So here was the Jewish significance of it. The Jews, prior to the coming of Jesus, when they entered into pagan lands, Gentile lands, uh, they would get dirt, obviously, from these Gentile lands, these pagan, the, the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the geography of the pagans, you know, they would get dirt on their sandals from those places that weren't, wasn't a part of God's land, it was part of the pagan lands. And so when they came back into Jerusalem, they were supposed to shake the dust off of their sandals so as not to bring even a little hint of the pagan influence around them back into the holy city. All right, so what are they saying here? Jews, you guys are worse than the pagans. I don't even want to take part of the dust where you guys live back to the holy city with me. That's where you fall in terms of your relationship with God right now. So it's quite the warning. It's quite the warning. And, you know, I'm not saying that we preach the gospel without any sense of grace or that we need to lead with judgment. Or, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying any of that, but, but certainly Paul didn't shy away from it either. Okay? Uh, we, we can have tact and we should have grace in the gospel. We should be full of grace. But at the same time, Paul did not sugarcoat this thing. Even in, even in the act of shaking the dust off of his sandals and quoting Habakkuk, it's very clear, look, you're rejecting God, and as a result, you're going to face his judgment. All right, so uh, let me sort of summarize uh, the message this morning this way. As we think about how should we plead for the souls of others and how do we proclaim the gospel, just a couple of things that we've heard. First of all, we have to proclaim the gospel. We cannot shy away from it in favor of humanitarian efforts. While, while God cares about those things and we should be about those things, it should never be to the exclusion of preaching the gospel. It should always go hand in hand with giving the greatest message. Our priorities have to be kingdom-centered. We have to be focused not on self, not on self-needs, but on the sending of others and the perpetuating of the kingdom in the here and now and, and right in our place in human history right here in South Boston, Virginia, as well as uh, sending people like Will uh, overseas. It's, it's both and. Our priorities and missions are here and there. It, 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 our priority is not on self, it's on kingdom. There are a variety of ways to witness, a variety of ways to proclaim, variety of ways to, to share the gospel with others. Paul does it in a number of different ways. But the emphasis every single time is on the fact that God does the work. He has provided the way. And it is in Jesus. Every single time. And I have to say this, I, you know, I don't know everyone's heart in here. If you don't know Jesus, uh, let me share the warning that Paul gives. Um, you're going to find yourself in a really bad space with God. Um, to reject God, to reject His message, to reject His Messiah, it puts you in a place where you're going to, you're going to face God's judgment. 
You know, I'm not trying to be heartless in saying that. In fact, the very fact that I'm saying is telling you that I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you that. But if you reject Christ, if you reject the message of the gospel, you will be judged. And I don't know who needs to hear that or if anybody needs to hear that in here this morning. I just, I feel like this message, this passage forces me to tell you that. All right, uh, so here's what I want to do. I want to pray in a second. We're going to have uh, Mark come up and lead us in a, a closing song. Um, but just as he sings, and I think we're singing Heart of Worship, if I'm not mistaken, as he sings, if God is bringing someone to your mind and heart, I, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't convict you or anything like that. But if God is bringing someone to your mind and heart that, you know what, someone needs to hear the gospel this week. Uh, maybe it's someone close to you. Maybe it's someone that's on their deathbed. Uh, maybe it's someone that um, you, you barely know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, if someone comes to your mind and heart, I, I would ask you to plead for their soul. Um, there, there's nothing more important. It, 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 can't, it can't be. If you love them, you would plead for their soul. I, I can't get around it. All right, so let's pray, and then uh, Mark's going to come. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to be like Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Give us the perseverance to do that. And even in the midst of sickness, maybe some of us find ourselves, like the prayer request at the beginning here, a number of us find ourselves in this room sick or those that are involved with the congregation that are sick. I pray that even in that, like Paul with malaria, you you would use them to reach people in the hospital. Use them to reach the doctors and other people that are dealing with the same thing, God. Uh, for those of us that maybe are listening to the message and um, we find ourselves in, not around uh, too many people because we're retired or anything like that, I just pray that you would use them to reach other people that are retired. Whoever is in our lives, whoever's connected to this body of believers, God, this week will you use them and me and us to see your kingdom spread, to see your gospel go, to fulfill the mission that started with the apostles in the book of Acts. Give us that conviction. Give us the conviction to take that and go, making disciples as we go. I pray that you would use us this week. Uh, I pray that there would be much to report uh, when my brothers and sisters come back next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.